The following panel was featured at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. And now, a panel discussion entitled The Gift of Jewish Giving with Mrs. Pamela Dubin, Mr. Mike Levin, Mr. Eyal Pastelnik, moderated by Rabbi Hershey Minkowitz. No shortage of vision is invested in the National Jewish Retreat, but a fair amount of vision results from each retreat as well. Here's a brilliant initiative that emerged from one retreat, one Chabad rabbi, two visionary philanthropists, and a leading Israeli professor. Al and Aviva Postelnik are creative, compassionate, and driven with love for our people, our homeland, and our Torah. Over the years, they formed a formidable team with their local Chabad rabbi, Rabbi Ephraim Silverman of Chabad of Cobb County, Georgia, drawing knowledge and inspiration while urging him to join them in ever bolder achievements for the Jewish people. Rabbi Silverman introduced them to the JLI retreat, which greatly influenced their spiritual trajectory. And it was at the 2016 retreat that they encountered Dr. Simcha Leibovitch, director of elite, experiential leadership training, and an expert in leadership training and empowerment. The professor's discussion on empowerment reminded Al of the Rebbe's insistence that each Jew serve as God's ambassador, operating proactively within their circles of influence to advance Judaism. Dr. Leibovitch had the tools to accelerate that vision. Together with JLI, they created COS, Community Anschluss, training Chabad emissaries in Israel to empower community members to proactively pursue community development, generating exponential growth in Jewish engagement. Part of that effort is the Get Chesed pairing program, whereby locals frequently visit the elderly. By divine providence, Al's own father's loneliness during the COVID crisis was transformed by the program. <laughs> לשליחים, המלכים אני קורא להם, שבאים לעזרת הקשיש ומעניינים את זמנו. JLI is now working to coordinate COS across North America and beyond. The project will bear the name of Al's dear father, Avraham, who passed on during the most recent Lagba Omer. May his memory be blessed. We salute Aviva and Al, and are honored to welcome them to the National Jewish Retreat. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this session, The Gift of Jewish Giving. And I am going to be moderating this panel. My name is Hershey Minkowitz, and I am from the Chabad here in uh, Alpharetta, Georgia, about 40 minutes from here. Join me, joining with me today on the panel is uh, Mrs. Pamela Dubin, Mr. Mike Levin, and Mr. Ayal Pastelnik. 
we are going to have um, some of them introduce themselves because we have a glitch here with the bios. So I'm going to ask Pamela to first introduce herself. Hi, I'm Pamela Dubin. I'm from Skokie, Illinois, then to Wisconsin, then to Israel. Very, very fortunate to receive a scholarship when I was in Israel called the Lev Tzion Scholarship. And I couldn't speak Hebrew, and I didn't know what it meant. And it came, and my Israeli roommate, who was very upset, and after the army day, read it to me. And it said that a Holocaust survivor had left a lot of money for anyone who comes to Israel alone. And my mother had recently died, and I was alone. And that moment of receipt of philanthropy set me on a path that I just didn't know any other way except to continue to give. And my life has uh, been very fortunate to work during the, with the Israeli government during the immigration of the Russians and Ethiopians. And then being someone who briefed and advised all the philanthropists and investors who came to Israel with the Startup Nation. I ended up working with the Prime Minister's office and with the Rabin family after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. And after the Prime Minister, uh, the next Prime Minister finished his tenure, I went directly and worked in philanthropy at the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Foundation. And following that, I set up a company called Great Stewardship and I work with all kinds of leaders around the world who want to have more effective philanthropy that actually solves problems and doesn't talk about solving problems. Glad to be here. This is an exceptional experience. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ayal. Very nice to know you. Nice to know you. <laughs> My name is Ayal Postelnik, born in Israel. At the age of uh, 45, we moved to the US. In Israel, I did uh, army service, I was in the Air Force. Then I studied engineering in the Technion. Then I went to work for some big company in, in Israel, named Elbit, if it makes something to someone. Uh, <laughs> then uh, I started my own company, and it was really a big challenge, because in Israel, you need to spend um, almost like 45 to 60 days in a year to do the reserve army. And to be a businessman, and yet to serve so much time in the army, it's a challenge, but you know, in Israel we say whatever doesn't kill you, make you stronger. So I think this was part of the education that I got. 2001, we won a big project with General Motors. Actually, it was OnStar. I guess the name sounds familiar to you. So we did OnStar for all of Latin American countries. It was pure Israeli technology with Israeli chutzpah, as I said because uh, when they ask us, I mean, uh, can you supply the system? So of course, yes. How long will it take you? Three months. <laughs> they looked at me <laughs> and said, no, no, the guy doesn't know. And it was funny because it was the president of General Motors Colombia. His name was uh, Pablo Ross. Later on, when he finished his career at General Motors, I found out his name was actually Rosenberg. <laughs> and, uh, but he didn't marry a Jewish uh, woman. And actually, he was uh, hiding his uh, Judaism. But what he did to me, came to me and he told me, look, I trust you, but you better know, if I don't deliver, like he was talking about him, and he put his hands over his neck, said, they're going to choke me, so you better deliver. We did deliver in less than three months, and uh, the rest was like history. We did it for almost like all American countries, uh, South American countries. Big success, sold that company. Uh, build a new company, which I believe is going to be even more successful. It's in the sport business. And, uh, but the most important thing that I'm here for, I guess, it's not my business career, 
but my actual life. We uh, moved to the U.S. and uh, we say in Hebrew, things you see from here, you don't see from there. We were involved with the birthright, and uh, at one time there was the mega event, which is half a million kids that came to Israel, and as a donor for that organization, we were invited to the Brachata Sultan in Jerusalem, and uh, we were seeing, I mean, the kids over there, Judaism for them was just a word, they didn't know what it means. But I saw how proud they felt when they realized that they are really Jews and they can experience Judaism. And I said to myself and to my wife, Aviva, which is sitting here, it doesn't make sense that you know, we were born in Israel and we would not realize and appreciate what a Jew means. And from that moment on, I met uh, Rabbi Silverman, which is a friend of Rabbi Hershey here. And uh, he actually, by thought, he, I mean, we started to meet and I started to feel closer and closer to Judaism. I put the kippah on my head. And since then, I became a Shomer Shabbat and I do everything I can in order to make others realize what uh, being a Jew means. So obviously we are here to speak about Zedakah and I can speak a lot about that as well. And uh, within the questions, I guess we'll have more chances. So thank you very much and I'm proud to be here. Thank you, Ayal. Ayal is very humble. He is uh, single-handedly building a, a whole wing on Chabad of Kab now, where the Jewish community come together for social events, and he's a tremendous supporter of Jewish causes in many other places. Mike is holding the mic, but I'm going to ask him to put down the mic, because um, for me, this is a dream come true to be able to introduce Mike. For him, I don't need a script. For him, I don't need a bio, because uh, Mike and I have been friends uh, from the, literally about a month after we moved to Atlanta. I had the good fortune of meeting Mike, and what I can tell you is this, that uh, you, know, you could talk about, you saw it on the video, he's a veteran in the hospitality industry, he ran multiple hotel chains, and he started his own hotel chain, and sold it, and then he took a Las Vegas Sands Corporation and turned it, out, turned it around from Boma's bankruptcy to making a lot of people very, very successful there. And he just had a very, very successful business career, but for me, Mike is more than a veteran in the hospitality industry. Mike is a veteran Jewish leader. Mike is a veteran uh, Jewish giver. And his entire life is all about helping others. He, unfortunately for him, he doesn't know how to say the word no. And fortunately for me, he doesn't know how to say the word no. What is this word? The main thing about Mike, and this is what I want all other philanthropists and donors that are either here now or going to watch in the future, the, the most unique and special beautiful thing about Mike is, is about his giving and his philanthropy is the way he does it. You become his friend, and when you spend time with him, when he's with you, when you're having the meeting with him, the coffee, whatever it may be, the entire world doesn't exist. And uh, two years ago, I, I got remarried and he wanted to meet my wife and we came to have lunch with him. And in the middle of the lunch, I saw his cell phone ring and I saw on the screen, it said Ken Langone. Those of you from New York know Langone Hospital. And I said, of course, I, you know, I'm just gonna go into silence now, there's an important call coming. And he just swiped it away because he was having lunch with me. And many stories like this about the uniqueness of his philanthropy is just the friendship, the care, and the making you feel like you're the most important thing to him right now when he's spending time with you. Like his son John once told me, my father is addicted to people. And that's what he is. And it gives me great, great, great pleasure, number one, to know that my friendship with him is already 23 years, but number two, 
to introduce him now for this panel. So what we're going to do is we're going to show a quick video about the uh, Jewish Future Pledge that he started, and then we're going to have some questions for the panelists, not just on the Jewish Future Pledge, there's about charity in general, and hopefully it will be a very meaningful and enlightening conversation that will ensue. We are the heirs of the most influential people the world has ever known. Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest lawgiver in the history of humankind, the descendants of David Amalek, the greatest religious poet in all of history. The world's first social critics, the first people to speak truth to power. Jews innovate in every single generation, and every one of them maintained that essential Jewish idea that you change the world not by the idea of power, but by the power of ideas. And that's what Judaism is that remarkable algorithm that turns Jews into the most resilient, creative, transformative, faith-defying people the world has ever known. Our Jewish story of survival and success is a miracle, and none of it happened by coincidence. If we don't think about the Jewish future now, who will? More and more young people are walking away from Judaism. Jewish organizations are struggling to raise funds and attract the next generation of donors. We must continue to strengthen the bond between Israel and North America. The good news is that there is something we can do. We have an historic opportunity to write the next chapter of the Jewish story. Over the next 25 years, an estimated $68 trillion will transfer to the next generation in North America. 6.3 trillion will be allocated to charity. We believe about 20% of that money will be given by Jewish donors. This means that over 1 trillion will be directed to charity by Jewish donors. But what charities will get this money? We must ensure that a significant percentage of these resources are committed to the Jewish future. That's the Jewish Future Pledge. It calls on all Jews to pledge that 50% or more of the charitable giving in their estate will support the Jewish people or the state of Israel. That's more than $600 billion. Signing this pledge sends a powerful message to your family, your friends, and future generations about the importance of sustaining the Jewish people. Tell them why the Jewish future matters to you. Sharing your story is the greatest gift you can give. Each of us must do our part. Together, we must secure the Jewish future. I am Mike Levin. And we sign. I am A.J. And I signed the Jewish Future Pledge. Okay, so you know a little bit more about this incredible idea that Mike has and is going around the world now trying to get mass market uh, penetration. But we're going to get to Mike in a minute. I first want to start the conversation in general about, uh, about tzedakah, about giving. So I'm going to start with a question to Ayal. Ayal, you know, tzedakah is a wonderful mitzvah, and there's actually something that you feel good when you give charity. You're able to help somebody else, just naturally you feel good. The question to, that I have to you is, should someone give tzedakah because it feels good, not even in a selfish way, it just feels good to be able to help others, or should tzedakah st strictly be driven by it's the right thing to do? So let me maybe start with an introduction, what tzedakah is. Okay. 
<laughs> so in the Torah, it says, Venatnu. Venatnu is like, and they gave. Now, the wonderful thing about that word in Hebrew, obviously, we read from right to left. But if you look at that unique word, you can actually read it from left to right, and it becomes the same thing. And the idea is that you give, but then you get back something in return. The question is, what is that return? Another thing that I actually found by myself, which is amazing, in a Torah, we have uh, like a code language, which is called Atbash. The letter Aleph becomes Taf, the letter Bet becomes Shin, and so on. Strange enough, if you look at the words Daka, you read it from right to left, it's Daka. You do it with the code Atbash, it becomes Daka, on the reverse from left to right, which is very unique. I mean, both words, which actually, I mean, say the same, and they are written right to left, and they can read left to right, right to left, doesn't make a difference, it's the same. Now, what does it mean? Obviously, in the Torah, nothing is by coincidence. Everything has a purpose, everything has a reason. And sometimes, and I felt like, I mean, even like, I mean, many years ago, sometimes the pleasure of giving is even stronger than the pressure, I mean, the, the pleasure of getting. Obviously, you like to be on the giver side, yet it gives you pleasure as well. But the pleasure doesn't really come only from the giving, but the results that you see from the giving. If you are able to help people, that because of the way that you gave something to them, it doesn't necessarily have to be money. It could be even other things. Maybe you give them knowledge, maybe you give them other things that they're missing, but the moment you make others to feel better, it actually gives you pleasure. But the results are for the year to come, and maybe years to come. And I think this is the greatest pleasure that you can see, that you were able to help somebody that will make his life better, and obviously because of that, generation to come will feel better as well. So I think this is our mission in life. The Rebbe was saying that everybody is a shaliach, everyone has a mission. And if this is something that I see myself as a messenger for that respect, I am honored to be such and to be able to see that, you know, we can make the world better. That's beautiful. Thank you, Eyal. So just to piggyback on that question and to move over to Pamela for a moment, not focusing so much on the Jewish Future Pledge and like where the money should go and all that, but just to ask you in general, when you think about what are the key values about tzedakah that parents should be instilling in their children? How would you describe that? Great question. Unexpected. What are the values? The values, I think, first and foremost, is, is very likely gratitude. Um, I think that carries us forward in a profound way. I know that this is a word that's used in these times in a profound, um, constantly. And it's because it's really very meaningful, Al just said, both the giver and the recipient receive much more than you can possibly articulate. So I'm gonna go with gratitude. My other one, I don't know how many of you were in one of the sessions with a woman who had lost her son and she asked everyone to think about the idea of Judaism carrying this idea of empathy forward. And part of Judaism is how much we have a collective sense of how we take care of one another. And another great woman here reminded me that when we light the candle for ourselves, we also light it for others. And so I very much feel that in the work of what, par of what parents can tell their children, the conversation, uh, my favorite conversation that I had with my nieces and nephews, because I don't have children, is I took them to the Palmachim Beach, um, right near Gaza. And I said, I don't have children, 
You know that my life has been devoted to the people of Israel and the children of Israel. And this is now your birthright. So I need to go to the beach in Boca more often and relax. And you need to make sure that you're doing, that you're taking this forward, that you are acting with the kind of responsibility toward others, whether you see it or not, have the gratitude, the empathy, and make sure that as you go into the next generations, whether you're at Stanford or Wharton or Yale or wherever you are, you know that Aunt Pammy is telling you it's critically important that you take care of the Jewish people for me. And beautiful. it works. Thank you. That's beautiful. So it's, it's interesting how God makes it. You know, each question is being able to flow right into the next question. So, Mike, the question, I have a, couple, a lot of questions for you. But my first question, which I'm extremely intrigued by the element of the Jewish Future Pledge, where you're encouraging the donors to be having real conversations with their kids about their interests in Jewish giving, right? I mean, there's about signing it into the document, but that's just like the legality of it. But the ethical side, the moral side, would you be comfortable sharing a little bit about like, what did your conversation look like? Or what should a conversation with a regular American donor, philanthropist, what should that look like when they're having the conversation with their kids about their interests in Jewish giving, and especially after they're gone? Well, I think, I think the most important thing about the pledge, basically, is what's going to happen in the next generation. The real, the real problem that I foresee is that the affluence of the Jewish society, the freedom of the Jewish society, is under significant pressure in the next generation. And it's become, it's become a situation where the wealth transfer is a concern of everybody. There's no problem with essentially protecting your children's standard of living or whatever with the wealth that you might have. If you don't have it, protecting them for something. But at the end of the day, without protecting what you do as a Jew for the Jewish people in the state of Israel, uh, there's no guarantee that the next generation is going to do that. And Jewish organizations, as, as the video said, are under stress now. Some of them probably they should be under stress, but uh, others, others shouldn't be. And uh, uh, the children should be able to make a decision. And I think you have to be in a teaching model with your children. You know, when I grew up, which is a long time ago, uh, the family would get together on Shabbos, or Shabbat as they say now, and uh, there would always be a conversation at the table because at three o'clock on Friday afternoon, an old man came to the, to the door, the back door of the apartment in which my grandparents and I lived in. I'm an only child, so it was only five of us, to pick up the JNF little blue box that we filled for pennies during the week. And then they gave us a new box to fill, and the discussion was why we were filling it, what we were doing to plant trees, or whatever we were doing for Israel at the time. So I grew up with that situation. It's hard for the kids today who have spectacular bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvah parties and whatever, and even the pro special projects that they do, and many of them are not even connected Jewishly. And the parents need to have a responsibility, or the grandparents need to have a responsibility to ensure the fact that we are going to be here, and we're going to need the financial support, and the children need to share that. And I was mentioning at lunch, I just had a discussion with one of my children this week, children, he's 53, and he has a donor advice fund. And he said to me, Dad, I, I need to spend some money. Can you help me with my Jewish spending requirements? And that's what you want to have happen. And you want to explain to them that that's what's important. And uh, uh, so for me, whether you have children or you have grandchildren or you have nieces and nephews, 
They have to be able to understand that what you do doesn't stop with your passing. And, and leave some money, leave some money. I don't care if it's 100000 or 10000 or $1,000 that says this has to be spent to support the Jewish people in the state or the state of Israel or some Jewish cause. And, and, uh, um, and I, I don't get a lot of objections to that, uh, but I find very, very few people have had those conversations. And for some reason, there's a lot of excuses. Well, they don't want to talk about their will. They don't want to talk about passing, whatever. But we must do it. It's, it's really, it's really, it's, we always talk the door for door in, in the Torah. And, with, and every, every service has the door for door in it. And uh, what's the door for door? It's the next from generation to generation. We must survive as Jewish people. Our contribution to the world for the numbers we have is extraordinary in many, many areas. And, uh, uh, and I think we owe it to the rest of the world to survive. Right, so the follow-up question on that, is, then we'll get to the other panelists again, is that something very common, we find this in our line of work, is that you have a donor, a philanthropist, that Jewish giving is extremely important to them, either they're giving 100% of their dollars to Jewish or 50 or 20, it's important to them. And unfortunately, the kids have gone in a different direction, not just because of their giving, just like you say, the focus and is just not been, they've gone in a different direction. So aside for tying them down legally, because you put into the pledge and your will that they have to give 50%, so they're obligated, but aside for tying them down legally that they have to, they're obligated almost by contract, what more can be done that they should actually be coming into that fold and should be giving willingly, that they should want to make the same pledge with their own money when they get older for their kids? Well, my answer to that question is you have to work at it. I mean, there are some, I've had some people, interestingly, say to me, well, my kids won't give anything Jewishly. So I said, well, are you going to live, leave any money for charitable purposes? And the answer to that is, yes, I am. I said, well, you're going to designate the charity yourself. Then you have to make in your, in your will the, in the, the, the gifts to those organizations that are Jewish. And don't leave any charitable money in that. But that was, that's been rare. I mean, it hasn't, I, haven't, I haven't had that often. I've had it a few times. Most of the time I get, we haven't had the conversation. And, and, and one man who's a, a big leader in the Jewish community uh, was one of the founders of the IDF group. Uh, association, a multi-million dollar uh, charity now, a foundation now. And uh, he was head of a major Jewish organization. And after I made a presentation to him, he said, you know, I've never sat down with my children. And they're adults, they sit and, and talk to them what I do. So I think, I think the key thing there is you have the conversation and you work it out that way. And I think most of the Jewish kids, even though they seem to be distant, they'll come back. They'll come back if you have a relationship. I mean, if you, obviously, if you don't have a relationship, it's not going to work. But, but for the mo most of us, most of us have relationships with our, with our nieces, nephews, children, grandchildren, et cetera. And you can set examples. People will lead by example. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Shifting a topic now to the here and now, not the money for the future after you're gone, hopefully for a very long time, till 120, but let's talk about the here and now. Ayala, I have a question for you, and I know this is probably very subjective, subjective and very situational and depends on so many different um, variables, but how does one decide when it comes to giving my specific question for you now is, you know, you can help a lot of people with a small amount of money, 
or you can help less people with large gifts. There's obviously benefit to both ways, and I could probably argue both ways myself, but I sit from a different side of the table. I'm curious to know, you as a philanthropist, how you look at that. For me, the answer is very simple. You, make, you need to make it significant. Because if it's not significant, it's not going to last for a long time. And if you want it to continue, you need to make sure that it's going to be solid and strong enough so people will enjoy it for the long run. So if somebody, for example, their, their financial situation, they have a $100,000 charity budget for the year, is it better to give 100 organizations $1,000 or 520 or 1010? Like, like, is it a lot of a little or a little of a lot? That's the question. I will divide it maybe to 80, 20%. Give 80 to one and the rest of the 20 to others. I think it should be something that will be significant. Very interesting. Thank you. That's interesting. Um, uh, if I could just bounce back to Mike, because we've had this conversation in the pack. Pamela, we're going to go to you with the next question. What, what, what's your thought on that? I think there are two kinds of gifts you give. One is for support, and another is for change. Okay. If you have the financial capability to change something, uh, for the good, of course, uh, then you make a large gift. But there are also many organizations that just need support. So my giving is based upon just that. Uh, if I'm starting something or trying to initiate a new, a new kind of organization or whatever, they may need support to get going, to do good things later. It might be a larger gift, but that doesn't take away, as A.L. said, the amount of small gifts that I would give uh, just for support these organizations because I think they, they need, whether it's $1,000 or $1,800 or $800 or $600 or $100. Uh, but uh, you don't expect to make change with support gifts. You expect to just support them. Mm -hmm. If you want to make change, like in the Schusterman Foundation or whatever, Pamela, I'm sure, can talk about that, they give large gifts. They also give some small gifts, I'm sure, for support. But the large gifts you're giving should be able to create a result, a significant result to, to get into a large gift. Thank you. All right, so thank you. I, I want maybe to emphasize sure. a little bit and to say, I believe in education. When I say the major thing that will be significant and will last for a long time, I believe in education. That's why when, as you said, I mean, we extended our synagogue, our shul, we made sure that it's gonna be like classes for children to learn, to become, more knowledgeable, and for that, it would be, I mean, better Jews, I believe. Not that it makes a difference between if you're going to synagogue, you're not going to synagogue, you're less of a Jew, yet you will have better contribution to the Jewish nation. On the other end, when it comes to food, like some people are, you know, they have like hard time to survive, and I'm talking even organization that I'm involved in Israel, like Kever Rachel, Rachel, uh, Rachel Tom, and uh, Rabbi Shimon Borichai. Those organizations, they need food, actually to feed people for the weekend, for Shabbat, and so on. So those places, I feel like I need to help them to, to manage. When it comes to study Torah over there, they need also support. Even Marat Machpala, it's amazing. Such amazing names and special places, yet they have hard time to survive. So those organizations need to have like support as well. But the big ones are anything which is related to education. Interesting, thank you. So now to Pamela, you, have, uh, you can talk to, from both sides of a coin. You're an individual yourself, a philanthropist, a charitable person, and you also work in the foundation world. So I'm gonna ask you a question that if you could kindly answer it, maybe two different answers from your own mindset and from the foundation mindset. And you know, most of the questions till now were really addressed to donors that are watching this now, that will watch the video in the future. Now, this question is really more for those of us in the room that, are, that run organizations. 
And the question is, from the organization's perspective, when we're trying to solicit funds from a private individual as well as foundations, how do you get into knowing what is, what are the, what is the right way to, to put your proposal forward that a foundation should look at it? And foundations look at money very differently than a private person. But you know, if your local Chabad house, let's say, was coming to you for a gift and versus, the, and they do, I hope they do, if they're doing their job right, um, versus if they're applying to the, to, we're not gonna say names, but any foundation that you may know history of or even other foundations. So how do private people and how do foundations, when they think about their Jewish giving, is there a typical formula on how they look at what are worthy Jewish causes and what are not? It's a great question, and, and I wanna bring in now the obvious elephant in the room, which is technology, transformative times, COVID, prioritization. And the, the truth is, a lot of people who are not at the tip top of the scale are motivated by emotion. I'm gonna also suggest to you and you all, I think will appreciate, in conversations that happen around philanthropy, there is an acknowledgement that we have a lot of professionals in the industry who maybe are not professionals. They're very likely lawyers, there may be data scientists, and sometimes what they're seeking is something other than some of the Jewish outcomes that we talk about. And I think that some of the conversations internally aren't had as often as they need to have. And externally, it's not, about the, it's not about just asking for money and having an expectation. You have to have a value proposition. You have to move forward and be, I'm sorry, transformative. So the support, of course, that's automatic, but nowadays, I'm hoping you're getting a good third of your budget digitally. I'm hoping that everybody is looking at the data that is showing that 82% of donors are giving with their thumb when their emotion is hit. That's why GoFundMe is raising billions. So there's a, a, a need to move forward. We are in an accelerated pace of change. There is, I like to say, there's actually enough money, there's enough problems, there are a lot of really, really good people. And I think these sorts of gatherings and conversations, when we can collaborate more, when we merge together, when we have accountability and transparency and we can have a conversation, how many students are you impacting? What is the outcome of them? It's one of the reasons I was one of a, or an early signatory onto the pledge. I, Hadara reached out to me, I saw it, and I said, this is one of the most revolutionary and accountable ideas out there because the more we're talking about the needs of a Jewish day school, the needs of a local synagogue, the needs of a local Jewish community, and all the new needs coming, what does it look like? I think there's a really exciting and optimistic uh, perspective out here that allows the people asking for money to, for themselves to get away from the jargon that doesn't work. It never works. It's really what, what you, the story you shared that you sat down with Mr. Levin and you're the important person in the room. The next day Mr. Langone will be the most important person in the room because it's not, I, I don't think in my experience there isn't anyone who's more important than the next in doing mitzvot. So to know that you're doing it, and I'll go further, among many of the people I work with, they're not in it for the attention or the wanting to be uh, on TV as much. They'll do that because it, it, they know the social capital 
and what that does and the social proof model that works. But at a certain point with philanthropy, you really realize that after you've succeeded at everything in life, what's left is to start sharing the positive impact, which oftentimes means more than everybody else's success. So that authenticity, again, I, I hate that any jargon words are coming out of my mouth, but the truth of the matter is most people want to help. They want to help carefully. They want to know, and I use the word reporting even though it's a dull word. And I'm going to take a, a side note and tell you of a company I met with, a data science company, something genome. And I mean, they are high flyers. I said, so what are you, what are you doing? We're providing the philanthropists and the corporations with reports. Each of the philanthropists pays us 50 grand a month or 100 grand a month, and we make sure that their philanthropy is doing what it means to do. And I said, oh, well, that, okay, a, a, that's a threat to my livelihood, and B, what are you talking about? How, how would you do that? Oh, we have a special algorithm we put together. I do a lot in cyber and crypto. I said, great, let me see your algorithm. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful report. And I said, but there's no column of outcome or impact. So you're showing, let's say it's Coca-Cola, I don't care what brand it is, but you don't know what you're doing? And, and everybody is satisfied knowing they gave the money. So I think we're in again, I'm gonna say transformative times, where the accountability that happens with somebody else's money and with the money you have as leaders of your organizations becomes the most pressing idea of leadership today. Beautiful, thank you. So a question for Mike, going back to the Jewish Future Pledge, then Ayala have a question I wanna ask you on another matter. So Mike, uh, two questions, if you could answer them, no, no, no related, but I'll put them both on the table, so in the interest of time, and then you can answer both of the questions. The first question is, who is the target audience for the Jewish Future Pledge? Someone that their entire state will be a couple of hundred thousand dollars, that means of that charity will be like a certain percentage. Is, are you looking for, are, is the Jewish Future Pledge looking to find every Jew on this planet to sign that pledge? Or ideally, I'm saying if you could reach every Jew on the planet, or is there a certain net worth of an estate at which point it becomes something that's relevant? That's the first question. I'll just put both questions out. The second question, which is totally unrelated, I think I'm observing a very interesting phenomenon about the Jewish Future Pledge, in that I think that there are people that are ready to sign the pledge that means that after they're gone, they're ready to commit now that after they're gone, more than 50% of their charitable giving is gonna to go to ch Jewish causes, but in their lifetime, they're not ready to do it. And have you, have you encountered that, and how do you explain that, that there are people that while they're alive, they prefer to give a lot of their money outside of the Jewish community, but yet at the same time, they're ready to sign on to the pledge that after they're gone, they'll keep it in the community? <laughs> Well, let me take the first question. Okay. Let me take the first question first. Uh, what was the question? About <laughs> what size donor are you looking for? Uh, yeah. Uh, my original goal with the Jewish Future Pledge was to get a million people to sign. I don't care whether somebody has nothing to give. Uh, I don't care if they have $5 billion to give. Uh, the reason for that was that uh, the most important thing about the Jewish Future Pledge is the generational conversation. The moral commitment to the Jewish people and or the state of Israel. It is not the money uh, it, to start with. It may be the money later, 
but any Jew should sign. I believe that every rabbi should sign, every Jewish professional should sign. These are many people who don't have tremendous money, but because I want every Jew to be able to be part of the movement. Now, in the early going, we got signage from large-scale foundations and from others because it was believed that we would get, they would, that people would follow. What happened with that was that we scared other people who didn't have a lot of money. I have one person, I can give you a name, so be private, who said he couldn't sign even though he had a large salary because he didn't have any assets to leave at this point. I said, it doesn't make any difference. I said, sign the pledge anyway. Sign it and talk to your children that if and when there is going to be a living, a gift of some kind, that it will be Jewish. So that answers the first question. The second question is a little too difficult, I think. Uh, uh, it, it, uh, it's a complicated scenario that you talk about there, um, and I, I just don't, I don't think I have the answer. Give, give me one more shot at it. Can you, okay. give, me, give me one more shot at the question. A different question? You mean? No, the, the second Oh, the second question. So the, the question really was that, from what I'm observing, you know, and I, I'm very enamored by everything you're doing, so I, I watch it a lot. I'm observing what, what seems to me people that yeah. are signing onto the pledge. I get that it. They would not do it in their lifetime. That's right. They give it outside right. of Jewish, but right. after their life, they give it. Right, I don't okay. Know the, the answer to that question was I, I've, I have not had that. I have not had anybody, I had one person, one person actually who signed the pledge, who said, I'm going to give all my money away before I go. And I said, that's fine. I said, but sign anyway, because even though you're giving all your money away, and this guy gives 100% of his money Jewishly. And I said, sign it anyway, because basically I want you to tell your children that you signed it. And I want you to tell your children that you're giving all the money away Jewishly in the hopes that they will be able to, whatever they have later from their own largesse, even if it's not any charitable money from the, from the father, or father and mother in this particular case, that they will transfer that. So I have no problem with that. Amazing. So Ayal, the question to you now is, and I'll preface the question with a personal story, which might even answer the question, but I want to hear it from a businessman's side. Several years ago, I forgot, maybe 10 years ago, I pulled up one day to my kid's school and when I was getting out of, when dropping them off, the, the head of the school there came out to the car and he told me that there was a kid in the community that was going to the school that, and they were going on the eighth grade trip and they needed, every kid has to have money to pay for the trip and this kid didn't have any money so he won't be able to go on the trip. He wanted to know if I could help raise the money for the trip. So I said, how much money do you need? And he said, $250. So I didn't even think twice. I said, okay, I'll take care of it, no problem, I'll pay. Now the only one part that I forgot to remember was that my account balance was at zero. And I, I gave, I wrote out a check on the spot and I gave him and I had no money in my account. So I went into Shabbos and enjoyed my Shabbos and Sunday I realized, oh my God, we're going to school tomorrow. There's an issue here because there's a, there's a check out there that's not gonna go through. So the next morning, Monday morning, I log into my bank just to see, maybe I miscalculated on my Quicken or something. And I see that it says electronic transfer into my account for $2,500. I'm like, thank you, God. Now, I knew that it says in the Talmud that the only one mitzvah that you're allowed to test Hashem is with charity. Whatever you give, you get back 10 times as much. 
And that's what happened. So I, I said, thank you, Hashem. I don't even know how it got there, right? I found out later that um, just that weekend, they were they're giving out, I think it was in Obama's days, the first stimulus. And they literally announced Monday morning, the stimulus is going to start going out to 250 million Americans or whatever. And what do you know? I got it on the very first day. And it was 10 times the amount that I gave. So my question to you, so I have a personal story that proves the point. But my question to you is from a businessman's perspective, do you really see this in your life? And you don't have to get into your personal numbers. And if it's not 10 times, it's six times, whatever. My, my, my question really is for the audience, do you see this in your personal life that when you give tzedakah, the teaching of Judaism is true, that you see it back in many ways, even in the most unexpected ways? So first, I'll start with a story. There was a father, and he was an old person already. He had a field, a nice field, and every year he was giving tzedakah 10%. As he says, I mean, asher te asher. It's like you need to give 10% of what you have. Actually, the difference between tzedakah and charity, charity, charity is something, if you will, I mean, you can give. Tzedakah, it's not something you should even consider. You need to give, it's a must. You can do between 10% and 20%, but 10% you need to. Anyway, though, so uh, that uh, father died, and he told his son before he died, look, I mean, this is what they did, this is how, how I was so successful. I gave Tzedakah every year. And the son realized that, and he, okay, first year he gives, second year he gives, third, third, third year he gives, and he's very successful as well. Fourth year, said, ah, I don't need to give that, that much money. I mean, let's try to save a little bit. And he give less and less and less, and every year that he gives less, he's actually earning less. After 10 years, he's only getting 10% of what he used to get. And he's realizing what happened. He's calling somebody, his friend, and he's asking him, look, I mean, I don't understand what's happening. How come when I started, everything went so well, and now I only get 10%. So the guy said, why are you surprised? When you gave uh, 10%, you were the owner, and God was the coin. Now, God is the owner, and you became the coin. So, and you know, sometimes it's kind of hard to realize if you're so successful because of what you do, because of the blessing that you have, because you're so smart. I don't even wanna deal with that question. I think it says, and I believe in the Torah, like 100% of every single word that is written is the right word in the right place, including every letter which is in there. And I think this is something that every Jew must do without even questioning whether it's the right thing to do or whatever. You need to do it. So one of, one of my biggest supporters once said to me in jest, he said, you know, if I never would have met you, I'd be so much wealthier today. And then he caught himself and he says, you know what? Actually, I probably would be much less wealthy. And every time he sees me, he reminds me that he believes strongly, very secular guy, that the more tzedakah he gives, Hashem takes care of him back. So you see it in your business life. That's, that was my I question. I think this is a story of somebody who lost his business card and said, oh, I'm so happy that he found it because now he spent less than my wife, so. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, so now we have two minutes left, so we're gonna do closing. I'm gonna do like a little, not, not a crossfire, but I'm gonna ask each of you 30 seconds, just literally final words, Pamela, final words about Jewish giving. Keep doing it. Don't stop doing it. We're a light unto the world for many, many reasons. For the people who are here, for the people who launch projects, for the people who work in our communities and at the communal level who help us build our communities to all of you, to JLI. Uh, keep giving and it comes back at you a million fold. Thank you. Toda. Thank you. That's it. That's your words. Thank you. Thank you for the answer. Go ahead. Ayal, your closing words. 
quick, 30 seconds. So it says in the Gemara, Ashor Te'asher, and it's actually, if you look at the Hebrew letters, Te'asher is also Tit'asher, it's like you become rich. So, and you said it right, I mean, the only thing that you can test God is actually if you become, I, I cannot say wealthier, but if you see benefits from the tzedakah that you do. But it says another thing, which is even very, I mean, stronger. If you don't give, then titchaser. Instead of titasher, titchaser. Titchaser actually will get less. And one thing everyone should learn is not to test the one above. I mean, he may test us, but not we, him. And I think, as I said, I mean, it gives you pleasure knowing that somebody is benefiting from what you have. And as we said, the, one, the thing that we have is actually not ours. It is something that God sent us as a tool or as a vehicle to be able to provide to others. So we need to thank God for every single thing that we have, including you know, the, the money that we have. And we need to share it in a way that everybody will benefit. Beautiful, thank you. And now to my dear friend Mike, closing words. Other than make sure you all sign the pledge. Well, yeah, I'd like everybody to sign the pledge, of course. But uh, I, I just want to say this. I, uh, someone, a couple came up to me after the lunch and said they were going to sign the pledge. Uh, you know, th there's, there's nothing, nothing, I, I had tears in my eyes, actually, uh, when somebody does that, because I've invested my resources in this for now for a year and a half. People tell me it's a no-brainer. And I say, well, how come you don't sign? And they don't have an answer. And, and so we have over 1,100 people that have signed, which is a good number, and we have over 2,000 teenagers that have signed the Jewish Youth Pledge. So we're making very good progress in that, and there's no money in the Jewish Youth Pledge. It's basically a commitment to the Jewish people and the state of Israel. And, uh, uh, and nothing, and I think for Eyal and Pamela and anybody who's giving anything, whether you give $10, $18, $18,000 or whatever, Nothing gives you more pleasure than helping another human being, another institution that you believe in, and, for, and just, just follow that rule. And I never, never conceived of myself as a young person being a philanthropist in any way, shape, or form. It was never on my agenda other than putting pennies in the box, in the blue box. I never thought I'd be able to do that. But the latter part of my lifetime, which began really when I was in my 40s and now in my 80s, being able to help save and, and ensure the future of the Jewish people. It's the greatest gift that anybody gave to me just to give me the pleasure to have to do it. Thank wow. you. That's beautiful. And just to end, just to end with a quick story, this uh, fellow, this miser, Jew, um, a Jewish guy, a miser, he was walking down the street and he fell into a pit and they were trying to get him out and they couldn't get him out. Everybody walked over and tried to get him, grab him, they can't get him out. Finally, one smart Jew came along and he said, I'll get him out, trust me. They watch from the side, he goes over, two minutes later, he's out. So they ask him and they say, what did you do different? We tried and we tried. He said, I'll tell you what I did different. All of you were going over to him and you're telling him, give me your hand, give me your hand. And he's a miser, he doesn't like to stick out his hand. I walked over and I said, grab my hand, grab my hand. And when he realized that he was getting, instead of having to give, he grabbed on and he left. And I think this is what we have to teach all our, all the donors, all the philanthropists, all about giving Jewish. You should know more than you're giving, you're getting, as was said today in the panel. And hopefully this generates a lot of good support for Jewish causes for the ever. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings.
and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.